0: Chapter 9, Part 3 of Haunted London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Haunted London by Walter Thornbury. Chapter 9, Charing Cross, Part 3. Another important donation was that of the great Peace and War bought for 3,000 pounds by the Marquis of Stafford, and given to the nation. It was originally presented to Charles I by Rubens, who gave unto the king not as a painter, but as almost a king. The British institution also gave three esteemed pictures by Reynolds, Gainsborough and West, and a fine Parmigiano. But the greatest addition to the collection was made in 1834, when 11,500 pounds were given for the two great correggios, the Ecce Homo and the Education of Cupid, from the Marquis of Londonderry's collection. To the Ecce Homo, Pungiglioni assigns the date 1520, when the great master was only 26. It once belonged to Murat. The Education of Cupid, which once belonged to Charles I, has been a good deal retouched. In 1836, King William IV presented to the gallery six pictures. In 1837, Colonel Harvey Olney gave 17. In 1838, Lord Farnborough bequeathed 15, and R. Simmons, Esquire, 14. The last pictures were chiefly of the Netherlands school. In 1854, The nation possessed 216 pictures, and of these, 70 only had been purchased. In 1857, that greatest of all landscape painters, Joseph M. W. Turner, left the nation 362 oil paintings and about 19,000 sketches, including 1,757 watercolor drawings of value. In his will, this eccentric man particularly desired that two of his pictures, a Dutch coast scene and Dido building Carthage, should be hung between Claude's seaport and mill. The will was disputed, and the engravings and the money, all but £20,000, went to the next of kin. The diploma pictures, that formerly were annually exhibited to the public, are of great interest, they were given by various members of the royal academy at their elections that of the parsimonious wilkie boys digging for rats fine as teniers is remarkably small there is a very fine graceful portrait of sir william chambers the architect by reynolds and one still more robust and glowing of sir joshua by himself he is in his doctor's robes there is a splendid but rather pale etty a setter surprising a nymph and a fine, vigorous picture by Briggs of blood stealing the crown in eighteen forty nine Robert Vernon, Esq., nobly left the nation one hundred and sixty-two fine examples of the English school. These are now removed to the Kensington Museum of the pictures given by Turner to the nation. The masterpieces are the Temeraire and the Escape. Of Ulysses, both triumphs of colour and imagination. The one is a scene from the Odyssey, the other represents an old man of war being towed to its last berth, a scene witnessed by the artist himself while boating near Greenwich. The works of Turner may be divided very fairly into three eras those in which he imitated the Dutch landscape painters, the period when he copied idealised nature and the time when he resorted from eccentricity or indifference to reckless experiments in color and effect, most of them quite unworthy of his genius. Not in drawing the figure, but in aerial perspective, did Turner excel. The great portfolios of drawings that he left the nation show with what untiring and laborious industry he toiled. In habits sordid and mean, in tastes low and debased, this great genius the son of a humble hairdresser in maiden lane succeeded in attaining an excellence in landscape fitful and unequal it is true but often rising to poetic regions unknown to claude rysdale vandervelde salvatore or backheisen ever since the modern pictures were removed to south kensington there has been a constant effort to transfer the ancient pictures and to abandon the national gallery to the royal academy a rich society making five thousand pounds or six thousand pounds a year which its members cannot spend and which tenants the national building only by permission to remove the pictures from the center of london is to remove them from those who cannot go far to see them, to the neighborhood of rich people who do not need their teaching, and who have picture galleries of their own. In 1859 twenty pictures were bequeathed to the gallery by Mr. Jacob Bell, and a few years later twenty-two others were added as a gift by Her Majesty. The last great addition is the presentation of ninety-four pictures by Mr. Wynne Ellis. But in spite of all these treasures, acquired by purchase or by bequest, the nation cannot boast that its gallery does justice to our taste or national wealth. It is still lamentably deficient in more than one department, and there are not wanting those who assert that the Royal Academy stifles art rather than promotes it. It is regarded by the outside world as a close borough in which the interests of the public and of students are postponed to those of its associates and members, the ARAs and RAs of the age. The building in which the collection is deposited was erected at the national expense from the designs of Mr. William Wilkins, R.A., and opened to the public in 1838. It was considerably altered and enlarged in 1860, and in 1869 five other rooms were added by the surrender to the trustees of those hitherto appropriated by the Royal Academy. In 1876, a new wing was added after a design by Mr. E. M. Barry, R.A., and the whole collection is now under one roof. The Royal College of Physicians is a large, classic building at the northwest corner of Trafalgar Square. It was built in 1823 from the designs of Sir Robert Smirke. The college was founded in 1518 by Dr. Linacre, the successor to Shakespeare's Dr. Butts, and physician to Henry Seventh. From Knight Rider Street, the doctors moved to Amen Corner, and thence to Warwick Lane, between Newgate Street and Paternoster Row. The number of fellows, originally 30, is now as unlimited as the dira cohors of diseases that the college has to encounter. In the gallery above the library, there are seven preparations made by the celebrated Harvey when at Padua, learned Padua. There are also some excellent portraits. Harvey by Jansen, Sir Thomas Brown, the author of Religio Medici, Sir Theodore Mayern, the physician of James I, Sir Edmund King, who, on his own responsibility, bled Charles II during a fit, Dr. Seidenham, by Mary Beale, Dr. Radcliffe, William III's doctor, by Kneller, Sir Hans Sloane, the founder of the British Museum, by Richardson, whom Hogarth rather unjustly ridiculed, Honest Garth of the Dispensary by Neller, Dr. Friend, Dr. Mead, Dr. Warren by Gainsborough, William Hunter, and Dr. Heberden. There are also some valuable and interesting busts. George IV by Chantry, a chef d'oeuvre, Dr. Mead by the Vivacious Rubiliac, Dr. Sydenham by Wilton, Harvey by Sheemakers, Dr. Bailey by Chantry, from a model by Nollikins, Dr. Babington by Poor Benz. One of the treasures of the place is Dr. Radcliffe's gold-headed cane, which was successively carried by Drs. Mead, Askew, Pitcairn, and Bailey. There is also a portrait picture by Zofani of Hunter, delivering a lecture on anatomy to the Royal Academy. Any fellow can give an order to see this hoarded collection, which should be thrown open to the public on certain days. It is selfish and utterly wanting in public spirit to keep such treasures in the dark. The wits buzzed about Charing Cross between 1680 and 1730 as thick as bees round May flowers. In this district, between those years, stood the elephant, the sugar loaf, the old man's coffee house, the old vine, the three flower de luce's, the British coffee house, the young man's coffee house, and the three queens. There is an erroneous tradition that Cromwell had a house on the site of Drummond's Bank. He really lived farther south in King Street. When the bank was built, the houses were set back full forty yards more to the west, upon an open square place called Cromwell's Yard. Drummond's is said to have gained its fame by advancing money secretly to the pretender. Upon this being known, the court withdrew all their deposits. The result was that the Scotch Tory noblemen rallied round the house and brought in so much money that the firm soon became leading bankers dividing the West End custom with Messrs Coutts. Craig's Court, on the east side of Charing Cross, was built in 1702. It is generally supposed to have been named after the father of Mr. Secretary Crags, the friend of Pope and Addison. Mr. Cunningham, an excellent and reliable authority, says that as early as the year 1658 there was a James Cragg living on the waterside, in the Charing Cross division of St. Martins in the Fields. The Sun Fire Office was established in this court in 1726, and here is Cox and Greenwood's, the largest army agency office in Great Britain. Lockett's, the famous ordinary, so-called from Adam Lockett, the landlord in 1674, stood on the site of Drummond's Bank, and Edward Lockett succeeded to him in 1688, and remained till 1702. In 1693, the second locket took the bowling greenhouse at Putney Heath. That fair, slender, genteel Sir George Etheridge, whom Rochester praises for fancy, sense, judgment, and wit, frequented lockets, and displayed there his courtly foppery, which served as a model for his own dorimont, and that prince and patriarch of Fop's, Sir Fopling Flutter. Sir George was always gentle and courtly, and was compared in this to Sedley. He once got into a violent passion at the ordinary, and abused the drawers for some neglect. This brought in Mrs. Locket hot and fuming. We are so provoked, said Sir George, that even I could find it in my heart, to pull the nosegay out of your bosom and fling the flowers in your face. This mild and courteous threat turned his friend's anger into a general laugh. Sir George, having run up a long score at Lockett's, added to the injury by ceasing to frequent the house. Mrs. Lockett began to dun and threaten him. He sent word back by the messenger that he would kiss her if she stirred a step in it. When Mrs. Locket heard this, she bridled up, called for her hood and scarf, and told her anxious husband that she'd see if there was any fellow alive who had the impudence. "'Pry thee, my dear, don't be so rash,' said her milder husband. "'You don't know what a man may do in his passion.'" Wickerly, that favorite of Charles the Second till he married his titled wife, writes in one of his plays, 1675, why, thou art as shy of my kindness as a Lombard Street Alderman of a courtier's civility at Lockets Shadwell, too, Dryden's surly and clever foe, says sixteen ninety one, I'll answer you in a couple of brimmers of claret at Lockets at dinner, where I have bespoke an admirable good one. A poet of sixteen ninety seven describes the sparks, dressed by noon, hurrying to the mall and from thence to Lockets, Pryor proposes to dine at a crown-ahead on ragout's washed down with champagne, then to go to court, and lastly he says, With evening wheels we'll drive about the park, finish at Lockets, and reel home in the dark. In 1708, Van Brue makes Lord Foppington doubtful whether he shall return to dinner, as the noble peer says, As gad shall judge me, I can't tell, For 'tis possible I may dine with some of our house at Lackett's. And in the same play, the very energetic nobleman remarks, From thence, the park, I go to dinner at Lackett's, where you are so nicely and delicately served, that, step my vitals, they shall compose you a dish no bigger than a saucer shall come to fifty shillings, Between eating my dinner and washing my mouth, ladies, I spend my time till I go to the play. In 1709, the Epicurean and ill fated Dr. King, talking of the changes in St. James's Park, says For Locket's stands where gardens once did spring, and wild ducks quack where grasshoppers did sing. Tom Brown also mentions Locket's, for he writes, we as naturally went from man's coffee house to the parade as a coachman drives from Lockets to the Playhouse. Pryor, the poet, when his father, the joiner, died, was taken care of by his uncle, who kept the Rummer Tavern at the back of number no. fourteen Charing Cross, two doors from Lockets. It was a well frequented house, and in sixteen eighty five the annual feast of the nobility and gentry of St. Martin's Parish was held there. Prior was sent by the honest vintner to study under the great Dr. Busby at Westminster, and in a window seat at the rummer, the future poet and diplomatist was found reading Horace, according to Bishop Burnett, by the witty Earl of Dorset, who is said to have educated him. Prior, in the dedication of his poems to the Earl's son, PROVES HIS PATRON TO HAVE BEEN A PARAGON. WALLER AND Sprat CONSULTED Dorset ABOUT THEIR WRITINGS. DRYDEN, CONGREVE, AND ADDISON PRAISED HIM. HE MADE THE COURT READ Hudibras. THE TOWN PRAISE WICKERLEY'S PLAIN DEALER, AND BUCKINGHAM DELAY HIS REHEARSAL TILL HE KNEW HIS OPINION. POPE IMITATED HIS DORINDA, AND KING CHARLES TOOK HIS ADVICE UPON LELY'S PORTRAITS. One of Pryor's gayest and pleasantest poems seems to prove, however, that Fleetwood Shepherd was a more essential patron than even the Earl. The poet writes, Now, as you took me up when little, Gave me my learning and my victual, Asked for me from my lord things-fitting, Kind as I'd been your own begetting, Confirm what formerly you've given, NOR LEAVE ME NOW AT SIX AND SEVEN, AS SUNDERLAND HAS LEFT MUN STEPHEN. AND AGAIN, STILL MORE GAILY, MY UNCLE, REST HIS SOUL WHEN LIVING, MIGHT HAVE CONTRIVED ME WAYS OF THRIVING, TAUGHT ME WITH CIDER TO REPLENISH, MY VATS OR EBBING TIDE OF RHENISH. SO WHEN FOR HOCK I DREW PRICKED WHITE WINE, SWEARED had THE FLAVOR AND WAS RIGHT WINE or sent me with ten pounds to Furnival's Inn to some good rogue attorney, where now, by forging deeds and cheating, I'd found some handsome ways of getting. All this you made me quit to follow, that sneaking, way-faced god Apollo, sent me among a fiddling crew of folks I'd neither seen nor knew. Calliope and God knows who, I add no more invectives to it, You spoiled the youth to make a poet. That rascally housebreaker, Jack Shepherd, made his first step towards the gallows by the robbery of two silver spoons at the Rummer Tavern. This young rogue, whose deeds Mr. Ainsworth has so mischievously recorded, was born in 1701 and ended his short career at Tyburn in 1724. The rummer tavern is introduced by Hogarth into his engraving of night. The business was removed to the waterside of Charing Cross in 1710, and the new house burnt down in 1750. In 1688, Samuel Pryor offered ten guineas reward for the discovery of some persons who had accused him of clipping coin. Mrs. Saint-Livre, whom Pope pilloried in the Dunciad. Was the daughter of a Lincolnshire gentleman who, being a nonconformist, fled to Ireland at the Restoration to escape persecution. Being left an orphan at the age of twelve, she travelled to London on foot to seek her fortune. In her sixteenth year, she married a nephew of Sir Stephen Fox, who, however, did not live more than a twelvemonth after. She afterwards wedded an officer named Carroll, who was killed in a duel soon after their marriage. Left a second time a widow, she then took to dramatic writing for a subsistence, and from 1700 to 1705 produced six comedies, to one of which, The Gamester, the poet Rowe contributed a prologue. She next tried the stage, and while performing Alexander the Great at Windsor, won the heart of Mr. Saint-Livre, a yeoman of the mouth, or principal cook to Queen Anne, who married her. She lived happily with her husband for eighteen years, and wrote some good, bustling, but licentious plays. The Busybody and Wonder a Woman Keeps a Secret act well. In May 1716, Mrs. saint-lieve visited her native town of Holbeach for her health, and on King George's birthday invited all the pauper widows of the place to a tavern supper. The windows were illuminated, the church bells were set ringing, there were musicians playing in the room, the old women danced and most probably got drunk, the enthusiastic loyalist making them all fall on their knees and drink the healths of the royal family, the Duke of Marlborough, Mr. Walpole, the Duke of Argyle, General Cadogan, etc., etc., she ended the feast by sending the ringers a copy of stirring verses denouncing the Jacobites. Disdain the artifice they use to bring in mass and wooden shoes with transubstantiation. Remember James II's reign when glorious William broke the chain Rome had put on this nation. This clever but not too virtuous woman died at her house in Buckingham Court, SPRING GARDENS, DECEMBER 1, 1723 Pope's dislike to Mrs. is best explained by one of his own notes to the Dunciad. She, Mrs. C., wrote many plays and a song before she was seven years old. She also wrote a ballad against Mr. Pope's Homer before he began it. And why should not an authoress have expressed her opinion of Mr. Pope's inability to translate Homer? Mrs. Saint-Livre is rather bitterly treated by Lee Hunt, who says that she, without doubt, wrote the most entertaining dramas of intrigue, with a genius infinitely greater, and a modesty infinitely less, than that of her sex in general, and she delighted, whenever she could not be obscene, to be improbable. Milton lodged at one Thompson's next door to the Bullhead Tavern at Charing Cross, close to the opening to the Spring Gardens, during the time he was writing his book, Johannes Philippi Angli Defensio. The Golden Cross ran up beside the King's Muse, a little east of its present site. It was the bull and mouth of the West End, till railways drew travelers from the old roads. It then became a railway parcel office. Poor reckless Dr. McGinn wrote a ballad lamenting the change, in which he mourned the Muse Gate public house, Tom Bish, and his lotteries, and the barrack-yard. He curses Nash and Wyattville, and then bursts forth. No more I'll eat the juicy steak within its boxes pent, When in the mail my place I take for Bath or Brighton bent. No more the coaches I shall see come trundling from the yard, Nor hear the horn blown cheerily by brandy-sipping guard king charles i think must sorrow sore, e'en were he made of stone when left by all his friends of yore like tom moore's rose alone no wonder the triumphant turk or missalongi treads roasts bishops and in bloody work snips off some thousand heads no wonder that the crescent gains when we the fact can't gloss that we ourselves are at such pains to trample down the cross. Oh, London won't be London long, for will be all pulled down, and I shall sing a funeral song, o'er that time-honoured town. One parting curse I here shall make, and then lay down my quill, hoping old Nick himself may take both Nash and Wyattville. Till late in the last century, a lofty straddling signpost and a long water trough Just such as still adorned country towns stood before this inn. Charing Cross Hospital, one of those great charities that atone for so many of the sins of London, relieved, in the year 1878, fifteen thousand eight hundred fifty four necessitous persons, including more than one thousand cases of severe accident, while above fifteen hundred persons were admitted on the recommendation of governors and subscribers. Surely, if anything can redeem our national vices, our selfishness, our commercial dishonesty, our unjust wars, and our unrighteous conquests, it must be such vast charities as these. One authority represents that great scholar and divine Dr. Isaac Barrow, the friend of Newton, as having died in mean lodgings at a saddler's near Charing Cross, an old, low, ill-built house which he had used for many years." Barrow was then master of Trinity College, Cambridge. Roger North, however, says that he died of an overdose of opium and ended his days in London in a prebendary's house that had a little stair to it out of the cloisters, which made him call it a man's nest. Barrow died in 1677 and was buried in the abbey. Rhodes, the bookseller and actor, lived at the ship at Charing Cross. He had been wardrobe-keeper at the Blackfriars Theatre, and in 1659 he reopened the cockpit theatre in Drury Lane. On September 7, 1650, as that dull, learned man Bolstrode Whitelock, one of the commissioners for the Great Seal, was going in his coach towards Chelsea, a messenger from Scotland stopped him about Charing Cross and cried, "'Oh, my Lord!' GOD HATH APPEARED GLORIOUSLY TO US IN SCOTLAND, A GLORIOUS DAY, MY LORD, AT DUNBAR IN SCOTLAND. I ASKED HIM, SAYS WHITELOCK, HOW IT WAS. HE SAID THAT THE GENERAL HAD ROUTED ALL THE SCOTS' ARMY, BUT THAT HE COULD NOT STAY TO TELL ME THE PARTICULARS, BEING IN HASTE TO GO TO THE HOUSE. LORD Dartmouth RELATES A STORY IN BURNETT OF SIR EDWARD SEYMOUR, THE SPEAKER'S COACH, BREAKING DOWN AT CHARING CROSS IN CHARLES II'S TIME he instantly, with proud coolness, ordered the Beatles to stop the next gentleman's coach that passed and bring it to him. The expelled gentleman was naturally both surprised and angry, but Sir Edward gravely assured him that it was far more proper for him than for the Speaker of the House of Commons to walk the streets, and accordingly left him to do so without any further apology. Horace Walpole was a diligent attender at the state trials of 1746. The day poor, brave, old Balmerino retracted his plea, asked pardon, and desired the peers to intercede for mercy, Walpole tells us that his lordship stopped the coach at Charing Cross as he returned to the Tower, carelessly to buy honey blobs, as the Scotch call gooseberries. But we must not leave Charing Cross without specially remembering that when Boswell dared to praise Fleet Street as crowded and cheerful, Dr. Johnson replied in a voice of thunder, Why, sir, Fleet Street has a very animated appearance, but I think the full tide of existence is at Charing Cross. Nearly where the post office at Charing Cross now stands, there was once, of all things in the world, a hermitage, even Prince George of Denmark might have been pardoned by James II, his sour father-in-law, for making his invariable reply, et il to this statement. Yet the patent rolls of the 47th Henry III grant permission to William de Radner, Bishop of Landau, to lodge with all his retainers within the precinct of the Hermitage at Charing, whenever he came to London. Opposite this stood the ancient hospital of St. Mary Roncesvalles. It was founded by William Marischal, Earl of Pembroke, a son, I believe, of the early English conqueror of Ireland. It was suppressed by Henry V as an alien priory, restored by Edward IV and finally suppressed by Edward VI, who granted it to Sir Thomas Carwarden to be held in free soakage of the honor of Westminster the mesh and labyrinth of obscure alleys and lanes running between the bottom of st martin's lane and bedford street towards bedfordbury with old round court so called in mockery for its centre were swept away by the besom of improvement in 1829, when trafalgar square was begun never to be finished in elizabeth's or james's time gallants who had cruised in search of spanish galleons wittily nicknamed these straits the bermudas from their narrow and intricate channels here the valorous captain bobadil must have lived in barmicidal splendor and have taught his dupes the true conduct of the weapon justice Overdoe mentions the bermudas with a righteous indignation look says that great legal functionary into any angle of the town the straits or the bermudas where the quarreling lesson is read And how do they entertain the time but with bottled ale and tobacco? How natural for Drake's men to give such a name to a labyrinth of devious alleys! At a subsequent period, the cluster of avenues exchanged the title of Bermudas for that of the Caribbe Islands, the learned possessors corrupting the name into a happy allusion to the arts cultivated there. Gay, writing in 1715, Describes the small streets branching from Charing Cross as resounding with the shoeblack's cry, Clean your Honour's Shoes! Great improvements were made in 1829 to 30, when the present arcade, leading from West Strand to St. Martin's Church, and inhabited chiefly by German toymen, was built and named after Lord Lowther, then Chief Commissioner of the Woods and Forests. The Strand was also widened, and many old tottering houses were removed. Porridge Island was the cant name for a paved alley near St. Martin's Church, originally a congeries of cookshops, erected for the workmen at the new church, and destroyed when the great rookery there was pulled down in 1829. It was a part of Bedfordbury, and derived its name from being full of cookshops or slap-bangs, as street boys called such odorous places. A writer in The World, in 1753, describes a man like Beau Tibbs, who had his dinner in a pewter plate from a cookshop in Porridge Island, and with only one hundred pounds a year, was foolish enough to wear a laced suit, go every evening in a chair to a rout, and return to his bedroom on foot shivering and supperless vain enough to glory in having rubbed elbows with a quality of brentford it was in round court in the center of the key shops herb shops and furniture warehouses of bedfordbury that in eighteen thirty six robson the actor was apprenticed to a mr smelly a copperplate engraver and the printer of the humorous caricatures of mr george crickshank the swan at Charing Cross, over against the mews, flourished in 1665 when Mark Ryder was the landlord. The token of the house bore the figure of a swan holding a sprig in its mouth. Its memory is embalmed in a curious extempore grace once said by Ben Jonson before King James. These are the verses. Our King and Queen, the Lord God bless... THE PAUL'S GRAVE AND THE LADY BESS, AND GOD BLESS EVERY LIVING THING THAT LIVES AND BREATHES AND LOVES THE KING, GOD BLESS THE COUNCIL OF ESTATE, AND BUCKINGHAM THE FORTUNATE, GOD BLESS THEM ALL AND KEEP THEM SAFE, AND GOD BLESS ME, AND GOD BLESS RALPH. THE SCHOOLMASTER KING, BEING MIGHTY INQUISITIVE TO KNOW WHO THIS RALPH WAS, BEN TOLD HIM IT WAS THE DRAWER AT THE SWAN TAVERN who drew him good canary. For this drollery, the king gave Ben a hundred pounds. The story is probably true, for it is confirmed by Powell, the actor. The street signs of London were condemned in the second year of George the Third's reign, but the sweeping act for their final removal was not passed till nine years later. In 1762, Bonnell Thornton, aided by Hogarth, opened an exhibition of street signs in Bow Street in ridicule of the Spring Gardens exhibition. But as early as 1761, the street signs seem to have been partially removed as dangerous obstructions. A writer in a contemporary paper says, My master yesterday sent me to take a place in the Canterbury Stage. He said that when I came to Charing Cross, I should see which was the proper inn by the words on the sign. I rambled about, but could see no sign at all. At last I was told that there used to be such a sign under a little golden cross, which I saw at a two-pair-of-stairs window. I entered and found the waiter swearing about innovations. He said that the members of Parliament were unaccountable enemies to signs which used to show trades, that for his master's part he might put on sackcloth for nobody came to buy sack. If, said he, any of the signs were too large, could they not have limited their size without pulling down the signposts and destroying the painted ornaments of the strand? On my return I saw some men pulling with ropes at a curious sign-iron, which seemed to have cost some pounds. Along with the iron, down came the leaden cover to the penthouse, which will cost at least some pounds to repair. This was written the year of the first act second George the third, and was probably a groan from someone interested in the existence of the abuse. The inferior artists gained much money from this source. Mr. Whale, one of the first academicians, painted a Shakespeare five feet high for a public house at the northwest corner of Little Russell Street, Covent Garden. The picture was enclosed in a sumptuous carved gilt frame and was suspended by rich foliated ironwork. A London street a hundred years ago must have been one long grotesque picture gallery. When the meat is all good, it is difficult to know where to insert the knife. In travelling, how hard it is to turn back almost in sight of some promised land of which one has often dreamed. Like that traveller, I feel, when I find it necessary in this chapter, to confine myself strictly to the legends, traditions, and history of Charing Cross proper, leaving, for other opportunities, spring gardens, the story of the greater part of which belongs more to St. James's Park, Whitehall, and Scotland Yard. End of Chapter 9, Part 3. Recording by Linda Johnson.